Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Get this microphone on right. There we go. I think that works. All right, I want to start today with a little health quiz, okay? So I don't know how many of you know this, but there are different types of painkillers, and different types of painkillers work differently. Did you know that? So, for example, you take two common ones, Panadol and Ibuprofen. You have pictures of them up on the screen. Uh, there are certain pains where you can take either one and you'll feel better, you'll, your pain will go away. But there are certain ones where taking one of these painkillers is more effective than taking the other one. And as a disclaimer, I know basically nothing about medicine. All of this comes from the internet. So if you know more about medicine than I do and I get one of these things wrong, you can come tell me later on. But, hypothetical scenario, say you worked out really hard yesterday. You hit the gym, pump some iron, your muscles are super sore today, and you're like, I need a painkiller. Which one is better to take? Any guesses? All right, I'll tell you. It is ibuprofen. Because ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory, so your swollen muscles will, will get smaller and less, less sore. Panadol won't do that for you. Okay, another scenario. I'm not advocating that you do this, but just it happens sometimes in life, so I'm using it as a scenario. If you had too much to drink last night, and you're a bit hungover this morning, you have a bad headache, is it better to take Panadol or Ibuprofen? Wrong. The answer is Ibuprofen, because Panadol gets processed by your liver, which is already overwhelmed trying to process all the alcohol. Ibuprofen gets processed by your kidney, and so you can get the pain relief without further overwhelming your liver. All right, third, you have bad stomach pain. Ibuprofen or Panadol? You're right, Panadol. Because ibuprofen can, has, has the potential to increase your stomach acid levels. And if your stomach pain is caused by something like acid reflux, putting more stomach acid in there is just going to make it worse. And so different painkillers work better for different types of pain. And you may be wondering why I started the sermon with this quiz. And it's because the fact that these painkillers work differently is based on the reality that they have different chemical properties to them. There's an objective reality to what these things are. Someone who's worked out really hard yesterday and has these sore muscles, they can still take Panadol to try to help them feel better, but just objectively, because of how it's made, it's not going to help their pain like ibuprofen will. And to receive the proper benefits of a painkiller, you have to understand those objective properties and you have to respond to them properly. And in a similar way, we're going to see today in our passage that God is an objective person outside ourselves. He has an objective reality to him. And if we're going to have a proper relationship with him, we have to understand who he is and respond properly to him and the reality of who he is. And if you don't respond properly, you're going to miss out on the opportunities that are there in knowing him and responding to him properly. So what we're going to see today is that living properly starts with being on God's side. Living properly starts with being on God's side. We'll look at the battle of Jericho, being on God's side, seeing God. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to gather in person again, and what a blessing that is. We pray for Um, the people in our congregation who can't be here today, whether that's because they're sick or they're in quarantine or they're stuck overseas or whatever the reasons are that people aren't here, God, we pray that you would be 
uh, healing and protecting and providing for them. And we pray for us as we hear your word right now that you would be speaking to us, drawing us to yourself and growing our love for you and our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this year we've been going through the story of the Bible, and over the past several weeks, we've been watching the Israelites, God's chosen people. They were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them from their slavery. He brought them into the wilderness and and did this special ceremony where he made them his chosen people and taught them what it means to live as his chosen people. And God didn't just bring them out of Egypt so that they could wander the wilderness forever. No, he had a plan for them to give them the promised land where they would settle and and where they would live and where they would experience God's blessing and abundance and it's gonna be awesome. And so they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They send in 12 spies to check out the land and the spies go in, they come back and they give a report. The land is awesome. They've got amazing fruit that just grows And we brought some back so you can see it. Look how amazing this is. There's just one problem. The people there are huge. Their cities are strong. We have no chance. They're going to eat us for breakfast. We will die. And so the people of Israel said, no way are we going up there. No way are we going into this land. Bring us back to Egypt. And God said, okay, if you don't want to go into the land, fine. You're going to spend 40 years wandering the wilderness. All the adults are going to die. And your kids are going to be the ones who get to go into the promised land. So 40 years go past. All the adults die. Their kids grow up. And Moses, the leader who brought them out of Egypt, dies. And Joshua, this new leader, takes over. And the time has finally come to to continue and finish what they started 40 years ago and go into the promised land. So Joshua leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the area that we now know as Israel. And they're getting ready to conquer the first city in this new land, a city called Jericho. And that's where today's passage picks up. Joshua, he's out for a walk near this city of Jericho, probably wondering how they're going to defeat this city in battle. Because it's true, it's a huge city, it's protected by walls, the people in it are big and strong and powerful, and what are we going to do? And as he's walking and thinking, he looks up, And there's a man in front of him with a drawn sword standing there. We don't really use swords much in our world. So if you want to just like imagine what Joshua probably felt in that moment, imagine you're like walking down the street and you look up and right in front of you is a guy with a gun pointed straight at your chest. It's terrifying and threatening and and you'd be probably frozen, not knowing quite how to respond. So Joshua asks a a question, a really logical question. Whose side are you on? Are you supporting us? Are you supporting our enemies? You know, if you're on our side, great. It's great to have the extra help. Maybe you can help us figure out a strategy for how to beat these guys. If you're on the other side, I'm in trouble, but at least I know. And this guy standing there holding the sword gives a completely unexpected answer to Joshua's question. Joshua says, are you on our side or are you on the other side? And the man says, no. He says, I am not on your side or the other side. I'm actually on God's side. I'm the commander of God's army and I'm here. I'm I'm ready to fight. And all of a sudden, Joshua has this moment of realization where he sees, I've been approaching this conversation all wrong. And rather than continue as he had been going, he falls flat on his face and worships. And just as a little side note, 
anywhere in the Bible that someone falls down on their face and tries to worship an angel, the angel says, get up, only God deserves to be worshiped. That doesn't happen here, which means this angel of the Lord that Joshua is talking to is actually God himself. The commander of the Lord's army is God. And Joshua realizes what's going on. He realizes he's in God's presence. And rather than saying, are you for us or for them? His question changes. He says, what does my Lord or master say to his servant? That's in chapter five, verse 14. Once he realizes that he's talking to God, he stops worrying about whose side God is on because he realizes the most important thing for him to do in that moment is to be on God's side. The question changes from whose side are you on to how do I get to be on your side? The conversation is totally flipped on its head. And God says, here, I'll tell you. Here's what you have to do if you want to be on my side. I'm going to give you a battle plan for defeating Jericho. And you just do my plan. And here's the plan. You're going to take your army. Okay, army that's good for fighting a battle. Have them wear their armor. Okay, great. Have them march to the city of Jericho. And then just keep marching all the way around it and go home. Okay. And as you do this, you're going to have your priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, the place where my spirit dwells, and you're just going to have them march along with the soldiers around the city and then go home. And you're going to take seven priests with seven horns, basically a worship band, and they're going to play a little concert as you march around this city. They're going to go around and they're going to go home too. You're going to all march around. You're going to all go home. One time, each day, every day, for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to do the same thing all over again. But instead of doing it once, you're going to do it again and again and again, seven times. And then at the very end, after you've marched around the city and played them a nice little concert seven times on that seventh day, everyone there is going to shout as loud as they can and the walls are going to fall down and you'll just march in and take over the city. Done. Now, if you were Joshua right there, how many of you would be excited to go back and deliver this battle plan to your troops? We're going to take a little hike, play a little concert, walls will fall down, we win. Easy, right? Would anyone want to like ask God some clarifying questions here? <laughs> I think I would. I think, I think if I was in Joshua's shoes, I would, I would sort of want to ask a question and I would look up to ask it and then I would see the sword right there and be like, maybe I better shut up. That might've been what happened. We don't know whether Joshua wanted to ask a question in that moment or not. All we know is what he did do is go straight back to his people and give them the instructions. And the people listened and obeyed and the plan worked just like God said it would. They marched around the city every day for seven days. They did it seven times on the seventh day and then they shouted, the walls fell down and they were able to just walk into the city and take it over. The end. They, they killed everyone in the city except for Rahab, the prostitute, and her family because when they had sent in spies a second time to check out the city, she had hid and protected the spies and saved their lives. And so her life got saved in exchange. And everything in the city that wasn't gold, silver, bronze, or iron got burned up. And the gold, silver, bronze, and iron got put into the, the treasury for God where, where things for the tabernacle and for worship were made from that. And I don't know if anyone's concerned about the fact that like everyone in the city got just killed, men, women, children, old, young. Um, 
But I feel like it might be a big enough topic that some people might be concerned about that it's worth just mentioning briefly and, and asking how could God have his people slaughter everyone in the city? Like if God is good and loving, is this not just cruel and unfair and a complete contradiction of everything we know about God? And the answer is no. There are a couple things we need to understand to, under, to, to see how this slaughter could be commanded by a good and loving God. So we're going to look at a couple of those and then we'll keep looking at the passage. First, God's goal in bringing Israel into this promised land was that Israel would live as his chosen people and experience the blessing of living in a relationship with him. But that's not all. His goal was that as Israel did this, they would be his representatives who would bring the good news about him to all the other nations of the world, and that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But in order for that to happen, Israel had to get their worship of God right in the first place. And the, the nations that they were invading and taking over, their religions involved things like religious prostitution and child sacrifice Things that if, if they were allowed to continue and keep happening in the vicinity where Israel was living, were going to corrupt their worship of God and not just theirs, but would actually hinder them from being a blessing and an influence to all the other nations of the world. And so in order to use Israel to bless the world, the Canaanites and their corrupting influence had to be out of the way. Second, God had given the Canaanites years and years and years and years to turn from their sin, and they hadn't done it. If you look at the book of Genesis, God actually says that the Israelites are going to go to Egypt to be slaves for 400 years. And part of the reason for that is because the people in the promised land are wicked and evil, but not so wicked and evil yet that they deserve to be wiped out. But if they continue in this wickedness and evil for 400 more years without turning from it, it's going to reach the point where they need to be wiped out. We talked a few weeks ago about how God is slow to anger, and we see that. He gave them 400 years to turn from what they were doing, and they refused, and they continued in their wickedness. And there comes a point where God has to act, or else he's not truly just. And even as Israel came into this land, the people of the land still had a chance to turn and be saved, and they refused. We see this when we look at Rahab. She and her family are rescued because she turned away from the false gods of her land and started to worship the God of Israel. But if you look at the rest of her city, what did they do? They shut the gates to keep Israel out. It was their way of saying, we want nothing to do with you or your God. Stay away from us. Leave us alone. After 400 years of chances to repent and stop and turn back to God. God gives them another chance in that final moment and they still refuse and cling to their wickedness. And so they come under judgment. And the fourth thing that's really important to realize is God is not biased. God is not unfair. God brings the same exact judgment on Israel when they rebel against him. He's just. The rebellion is punished regardless of who commits it. Actually, if you look ahead to Joshua chapters 7 and 8, we see Israel loses some battles and they pray and they're like, God, why are we losing these battles? And he says, someone took some loot from the city of Jericho that you weren't supposed to take. And because this person took the loot, that, that curse of destruction that was on the city of Jericho is now on you guys. And until you deal with this, you're under that same punishment, that same command of destruction. But what we see in that passage is that Israel all of a sudden turns and says, okay, let's figure out who did this. Let's find the guy. And they 
take care of it. They turn, they repent, they come back to God. And so they're rescued from being totally wiped out in that moment. So God is fair. He is just. He gives time and chance and chance and chance and chance to repent. And they don't. (laughs) And I know there's a ton more we could say on this topic. We don't have time to go more in depth into it now. But if you want to talk more about it later, feel free to get in touch with me. All that to say, Joshua and the Israelites, they follow a plan that seems completely unorthodox, but they conquer the city. And so let's talk about being on God's side. I think as we look at the story and ask, what does this story have to say to our lives? There's one big thing, huge thing that jumps out, at least to me. And it comes from Joshua's conversation with God at the end of chapter five. Like we said, Joshua starts the conversation asking God, whose side are you on? Maybe trying to get God on his side. But once Joshua realizes what's going on, he realizes what he really needs is to get himself on God's side. And I want to ask you, how often is Joshua's initial response to God our response in life as well? We try and get God to be on our side in the different conflicts of our lives. But what we really need is for us to be on God's side. And you may be wondering, what's the difference? And the difference is when I'm trying to get God on my side, the focus is on my agenda, my desires, my will, me getting what I want. I want to get God's blessing or seal of approval to keep doing the things that I want to be doing. When my focus is on me getting on God's side, the focus is on God's agenda, God's will, God's desires, God's way, and and trying to discern his will rather than just do what I want. Getting God on my side centers on me and my will. Getting me on God's side centers on him and his will. And I realize this is really dangerous and confusing because our hearts are great at tricking us in this matter. Our hearts often try to convince us that we genuinely are on God's side when actually all along we're trying to get God on our side. We're like lawyers laying down an argument that that feels convincing in the courtroom of our hearts. We do the wrong thing, all the while convinced that we're doing exactly the right thing. Here's an example of what this may look like. Do any of you follow American politics? I'm I'm using American politics as an example because I feel like Americans just like, get more hardcore into their politics than most other countries. And in America, anytime there's a a big election, if you follow it, what you'll notice is there are people on both sides who will come out and say, you should vote for this political candidate because this is God's candidate in the election. They'll say things like, it is a morally right choice to vote for this candidate because this is God's candidate in the election. And it just happens to be a a happy coincidence that God's candidate is from the party that I've supported throughout my entire life. And there are people, don't get me wrong, there are people who genuinely search the Bible, who genuinely look to God's word and try and discern his will on who to vote for. But there are plenty of people who make up their mind on who they're going to vote for and then find ways to conveniently use God as an excuse to justify their vote. They, they genuinely believe it's God's candidate and they're getting on God's side, but they only decided it was God's candidate after they had first decided that it was their candidate. And it's so easy to do this in the various different scenarios of our lives. We tell ourselves, I'm trying to be faithful to God. I'm trying to be on God's side. When actually we've already made up our minds. 
We've already decided what we're going to do, and we're just using God as an excuse to make ourselves feel better about doing that thing. And how do we know which approach we're taking? Well, I think one of the biggest tests is how we respond in the face of opposition. So using that political example, if, if God's candidate loses the election, how do you respond? Are you stressed and anxious and afraid, and do you turn to blaming other people for ruining God's plans? If so, that might be a good indicator that you're actually most concerned about your own side, not God's side, because you don't truly trust God with the results. You feel like the weight of the outcome rests on your shoulders because this is your candidate. And if we're really focused on being on God's side, we'd have a greater level of, of peace. We might still be sad, we might still be upset, but we'd have more peace. We wouldn't have our lives falling apart because our candidate lost. We wouldn't feel the need to, to lash out in anger at the people around us because our candidate lost. We can have peace knowing that God's in control, knowing that he'll bring the victory, even if at the end of the day, that's not the victory you were expecting. And something I see and experience throughout my life is it's really, really hard to consistently align myself with God and try and get on his side rather than just trying to get him to be on my side. Does anyone else feel that way? just really hard to do that consistently. And you know why it's so hard to consistently live on God's side? Because most of the time, God's side makes absolutely no sense to us. I mean, look what he tells Joshua to do right here in this passage. Take all your soldiers, have them go for a hike. Take your worship band, have them play a concert and do this over and over for seven days and the city will be yours. Now, doesn't God know that you win battles by fighting? Doesn't he understand that standing back and walking will accomplish absolutely nothing? That's what we would say if we were in that circumstance, right? I, I mean, I grew up in church. I don't know how many of you grew up in church. I've been hearing this story since I was probably like Judah's age. And I think when, when you come from that type of a background, where you hear this story over and over in Sunday school and you read it to your kids in the children's Bible and you see it whenever you read through the Bible, it can be a little bit hard to feel the drama and suspense that's happening in this story. It's hard to see when you've known this story your entire life and you've known how it ends, that this is actually a crazy idea. Who would do this? Nobody would do this because it's not gonna work. But if you've heard this story your entire life, it's easy to think, well, of course you would walk around the city because you know the walls are going to fall down. And it's easy to feel that way when you know the story, when you're looking back on it from the other side, when you weren't part of it. But when we're living in this type of story in our lives today, in daily life, rather than reading about it in the Bible, and we're in the middle of the story rather than looking back from the other side, oh, we, we so often just don't have that confidence. We feel like, oh no, I, I need to do something because God's instructions are literally insane. Instead of unthinkingly jumping in with God's plan, we say things like, God, I know you told me and tell all of us to love our enemies, but when you gave that command, you didn't know about my boss. My boss is a jerk. On a regular basis, as I'm getting ready to pack up and leave the office at the end of the day, my boss comes and gives me a new assignment that urgently needs to be done right this moment that keeps me at the office past midnight. And then when I get it done and hand it in, he takes all the credit for it with his superiors and just lets me just stay late and get no credit. 
can you believe this guy? How am I supposed to love someone like that? Or we'll say things like, God, I know you call me to love my spouse, but my spouse is unlovable. My spouse won't talk to me. They're lazy and they contribute nothing around the house. They, they would rather spend time with anyone else on the planet other than me. How can I love someone like that? And in my experience, the bulk of the time, when we face situations like this, most people, Christians included, don't instinctively say, God, what does it look like for me to be on your side in the midst of this situation? When I interact with my boss or when I interact with my spouse or with whatever other person in my life is driving me absolutely nuts. No, what we say more often is, God, I need you on my side right now. There's a conflict going on and I am right. And so I need you to get on my side because my side is the right one. And if you think about what it looks like to get on God's side in these situations, doesn't treating a boss who's a jerk with love rather than, you know, fighting with them or complaining about them or spreading rumors about them, doesn't treating that kind of a boss with love feel a lot like walking around a city as a battle strategy? And you can just feel in your bones that it's not going to make any type of difference in the situation. You're going to try it for seven days and get to the end of the week and be no closer to your goal than you were seven days ago. Or with that difficult spouse, doesn't continuing to be proactive in showing love to a spouse who's completely disengaged from you without guilt tripping them, without placing some burden of weight that they're going to respond in a certain way, doesn't continuing to show that type of a spouse love feel like walking around a city and expecting the walls to fall down? It can feel like it's just inviting ridicule. Like someone's, someone's going to see what we're doing and just be like, your plan is crazy. Just stop right now. Find a better way. Maybe just get out of the marriage. That's the easiest thing. And if we're honest, we probably feel that way ourselves too because God's plan just feels crazy to us. Getting on God's side in these moments and the other ones like them in our lives, it feels pointless and ineffective. And so we just don't do it. Instead, we complain about the injustice we're facing. We find friends who can be our allies and tell us we're right to be upset. And the more our friends say we're right to be upset, the more we feel that it's true, the more we feel like God's saying that to us. And all the while, what we're really doing is trying to get God onto our side. Because if we really wanted to be on God's side, he's already told us what that looks like. Love your enemies, love your spouse. But that's too hard. That's too insane. We don't want to do that. And so I think for many of us, we know the story of Jericho as a story, but we haven't actually understood it on the level that it becomes a life-transforming truth for us. In theory, we know it's important to be on God's side, more important to be on his side than to get him on our side. But in practice, it's so hard to live that out. Knowing the story and how it worked out for the Israelites then doesn't necessarily mean we'll be able to connect it to our lives today. And so how do we get on God's side? Well, let's look at seeing God. Because for Joshua, this transition happened when he saw God. He starts out the conversation. He doesn't realize he's talking to God. He comes into the conversation just trying to feel this guy out. What side are you on? Who are you supporting in the battle? Working to achieve his own political and military goals. But then he learns the truth. This guy in front of me is God. And the moment he realizes that, that changes Joshua's posture and his question. 
his posture changes because rather than staring the guy face to face, Joshua falls down flat on his face and worships. Now, if you're flat down on your face on the ground in front of someone, it's really hard to make demands of that person because you're in a position of inferiority, especially when they're holding a sword. All they have to do is go and your head's off. Joshua is in a position of weakness and inferiority. And from that position, his question changes. He's no longer asking, how do I get you on my side? The new question is, what do I have to do to get on your side? And when God comes up with a crazy battle plan, there's no questioning the plausibility of that command, no arguing about how insane it is. There's just a determined obedience. And then he brings the plan to the Israelites and they go along with it too, because what have they seen? They've seen God's constant provision for them throughout 40 years in the wilderness. Seeing God gives Joshua the faith to obey no matter how crazy or insane the instructions seem. And so I want to ask, how do we see God in this way? What does that take in our lives for us to have this type of interaction with God? I don't know if you realize this, but but the battle of Jericho is not the only time in history that God has chosen a seemingly foolish plan of attack in a really important battle. In the battle against Satan and sin and death, the ultimate power struggle in the universe, We'd naturally expect God to show up in power and majesty and strike his enemies to the ground once and for all. And the Bible tells us he will do that one day. But the defining moment in that battle, it didn't come in a display of power, but in a display of weakness. It happened by God putting on human flesh and all the frailty and weakness that come with being human, including the ability to die. It came as Jesus, God in human flesh, he refused to harness his divine power to achieve his own comfort and fame. And instead he chose to suffer in humility. He fully immersed himself in the human experience, despite the fact that he was God. And the battle against Satan and sin and death, it was won as Jesus allowed himself to be arrested on false charges and hung on a cross until his lungs filled with blood and he suffocated and died. From a human perspective, this plan of attack is foolish. It is illogical. It is the exact opposite of what God should have done. And yet it was precisely the plan of attack that was needed to win the war. Because by fighting the war in this way, God's able to win the battle over sin and death without crushing and destroying us simple humans in the process. He paid the price so that we can be set free. So that when he does return one day to crush his enemies under his feet once and for all, we can be on his side, not on the losing side. By gaining the victory in a way that seems weak and inefficient and illogical, God gave life to all who trust in him. And he opened the way for us to truly and eternally get on his side. And it's only when we understand this exchange and the seeming insanity of it and the ways that the the power and beauty of God that seem foolish to man, but we see them as truly powerful and beautiful. That's when we're going to learn to want to be on God's side. And once we do see Jesus in this way, it's actually going to equip us for the type of obedience that this passage is calling us to. Because the pattern of the battle of Jericho and the pattern of the cross is the pattern of the Christian life. We gain life and get on God's side, not by fighting for our rights 
or pressing for what makes the most sense to us, but by laying down our lives and dying to our own desires. We gain life not by getting God on our side, but by getting ourselves on God's side. And, and in the midst of the process, it's probably not going to feel like we're gaining life. It's actually probably going to feel like we're dying because in a way we are. We're dying to our desires and to our false sources of hope that we think give us life. But as we die to those things, it creates space in our hearts for us to place our hope fully and truly in God. And remember, the pattern of the cross is the pattern of the Christian life. Resurrection always comes after death. The pattern of Jesus, death, then resurrection. It's the pattern of the Christian life as well. The life, the, the death we experience always leads to a greater life. That's, that's even better than what we had before. Now, the hard part of the process is we can't control when that resurrection comes or what form it takes. So we might just be going through something that feels like a death for a long time, maybe even the rest of our lives on earth. But God promises it will always end in resurrection for his people. It will always be worth it for those who follow him. Which means if we're in the midst of this process, we can endure with hope, continually, continuously aligning ourselves with God's side, even when it doesn't make sense, because the resurrection is guaranteed. Look at verse, chapter 6, verse 2 of today's passage. The Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. You notice at this point in the story, Joshua and his troops have not taken a single step towards Jericho. And God speaks to him and tells him the victory is already a completed fact. The reason Joshua and his troops can take any step towards the city to fight or take a hike around it, it's precisely because their victory is already secure. It doesn't rest on their shoulders. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. When we die to our desires, when we let go of our side so we can be on God's side, we can do it with confidence because the victory is already secure. The resurrection that comes at the end of the process has already been accomplished for us. It's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. And then I love this also. On the seventh day, they march around the city. They get to the end of their seventh trip and then they shout. Do you know what the shout was? In ancient battles, you shouted as a cry of victory. God tells the Israelites, I want you to march around this city every day for seven days. And at the seventh day, you're just going to stand back and you're going to declare that you are already victorious over this city, even though you haven't done a single thing and the walls are still right there. And in the process of you declaring that you have won the victory over the city, that's when I'm going to give you the victory over the city and the walls are going to topple and fall down. It seems crazy, right? Like who says I've won the battle before the battle's even started? All they've done is walked around the city. But how often does God work this way with our faith as well? We feel overwhelmed and defeated by circumstances. Like there's no way we could possibly love that difficult boss or that difficult spouse, or that difficult whoever in our life. And then we beat ourselves up feeling like, oh, I'm such a failure. There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could delight in me. There's no way God could forgive me because I'm such a failure. And victory doesn't come when we get our act together so we can earn God's love. No, 
It, it comes when we choose to believe his word and live as if it's true. We choose to believe the Bible when it says God already forgives us, already delights in us, already loves us in the midst of our failures. And in that moment, knowing that he already delights in us, knowing that our victory is already secure, reminding ourselves of that is precisely where the, we find the strength to once again go out and die to ourselves and our desires and align ourselves with God's side. It's when we remember the victory that we already have and we declare that victory that we're able to live in a way that actually brings the victory. Reminding ourselves of the victory we have in Christ is where we get the strength to pray for that difficult boss instead of just complain about him to our coworkers. Reminding ourselves that God already loves us and delights in us is where we get the strength to speak words of kindness and encouragement to a disengaged spouse, even though all they deserve from us in that moment is a cold shoulder. When we see God and his beauty on the cross, that's when we're finally going to be able to ask the question, God, what does it take for me to be on your side? It's not always going to be easy. It's often going to look silly and foolish to the people around us. It's probably going to feel silly and foolish to ourselves a lot of the time. It's going to be difficult and uncomfortable because it requires us to die to ourselves. But in the end, it's the only side to be on. Because God's side is the side that will win the victory. And God's side is the only one that ends in resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom that seems foolish to us. And we pray for your forgiveness for the times that we've failed to listen to your wisdom and obey you because it just seems so foolish. But God, we thank you that you have true wisdom and true power. That you bring true victory, not just in the circumstances of life, but in eternal things as well, that you've given us victory over Satan and sin and death through Jesus, that you've promised us resurrection for those who trust. God, I pray that you would teach us to get on your side today, to align ourselves with you, to live in a way that shows the reality that we know the beauty of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.